0: Log Talk
1: Radio. The Bible, yeah, that's the book for me. The Bible, yeah, that's the book for me.
2: B-I-B-L-E, that's where life's most important questions are answered in the Bible. Check it out today. And thanks for listening to me. Melissa Cantola here on Truth Be Toll Radio. And now getting start with the lesson. This is The Savior Who Seeks by John MacArthur.
3: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John that unpacks 15 Greek words in Scripture that explain a stunning paradox, how a God of perfect justice can show mercy to sinners who deserve only punishment. Request your free booklet titled 15 Words of Hope by writing to hope at gty.org. That's hope at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through June 2023. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time. Here's Grace to You Bible Teacher John MacArthur.
4: I told you last week that we were going to endeavor to embark on a study of conversations with the Lord Jesus. There are so many compelling and riveting incidents like that in the four Gospels that we're, we're going to be looking at them for an indeterminate time at this juncture until uh, the Lord gives us some different direction. Focusing on Christ is the most important, the most transforming thing that we can do. So let's look at him in a conversation in the 19th chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 19. A very familiar story, but one that illustrates the greatest truth of his life. Luke 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today, Salvation has come to this house because He too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That last verse is a definitive declaration of the purpose for the Incarnation. Jesus came into the world to seek and to save lost sinners. This is the divine enterprise in God's redemptive plan. From the fall of man, God has always sought out sinners. All the way back in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve had sinned, God comes into the garden and says, where are you? Where are you? And ever since then God has been seeking sinners, seeking the lost. In one of the most beautiful Old Testament texts, Ezekiel quotes God saying this, "I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick." Ezekiel 34:16. God is a seeking God. He is not in some form of isolation waiting for us to figure out a way to get to Him. He rather seeks us. And by the way, Romans 3.11 says, no man seeks after God. We are neither able or willing to seek after God. He is beyond human discovery. God has to seek us. And that is the story of the Bible. That is the story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He seeks sinners. He seeks sinners. And that's what this story is about. And it's really counterintuitive. If you were a Jew in Jericho and you, you were there this day, you would have been in utter shock and dismay that He would have sought the sinner that He sought. But this is the work of the Son of Man. Son of Man is the messianic title that we find in Daniel, chapter 7, emphasizing His humanity as well as His glory. And verse 10 says, He has come, meaning at His birth, in the incarnation, why? To seek and save that which was lost or ruined or destroyed. That word can mean any of those. The Lord Jesus came into the world on a quest to seek and save doomed sinners. He didn't come for philanthropy. He didn't come to alter culture as such. He didn't come to demonstrate benevolence. He didn't come to merely show kindness. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And if there was to be any salvation at all, He would have to do that. He would have to seek the sinner, because the sinner does not seek Him. And He would have to save the sinner, because no sinner has the capacity for Self-salvation. Ephesians 4 says about all sinners, they are alienated from the life of God. They don't seek after God. There's none righteous, no, not one. But God in His eternal love determined that He was going to seek and save sinners. And again, this goes against the grain of all typical religion. Religion basically says if you're good enough, God will accept you. And if you seek Him by being good enough or religious enough, you'll find Him. That's, that's the devil's lie. You can't be good enough. You have no capacity to find Him. The only way you can be saved is if He seeks and He saves. And that is exactly what this verse, verse 10, is saying. You go back to the birth of Christ. Do you remember these words in Matthew one twenty one? The angel said, Call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Call His name Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. In the words of 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Nothing produces greater joy in heaven than the seeking and saving work of God. Go back to chapter 15 in Luke, very, very dramatic chapter where our Lord told three stories. One about a lost sheep, another about a lost coin, and then finally about a lost son. In each case, the sheep was found, the coin was found, and the prodigal son was found. And then you get a commentary immediately on how important that seeking and finding was. If you go back to verse 7, the last verse in the story about the sheep, I tell you that in the same way as there was joy in finding the sheep from verse 6, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. If you're in the category of those who think they're righteous, you bring no joy to heaven. Ninety-nine self-righteous people who don't repent give no joy to God or the angels or the redeemed in His presence. But the recovery of a sinner makes heaven ring with joy. The next story, verses 8 to 10, is about a woman who lost a very valuable coin, and when she found it, in verse 9, she called all her neighbors and said, Rejoice with Me. And in the same way, verse 10, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is a validation of the whole purpose of God in human history, to save sinners. It only takes one sinner to set heaven into exuberant Joy. Then you have the longer story of the prodigal. And do you know how that story ends? Verse 32. We had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And again, this is a picture of heaven's joy. And that means God's joy and the joy of the angels and the joy of the spirits of just men made perfect dwelling in heaven. God's joy is found in seeking and saving sinners. Scripture makes much of this joy. Back in Isaiah 62.5, it says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride in a wedding, and that's got to be the most joyful human event, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so." Your God will rejoice over you. Or Jeremiah 32:41, And I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. God is fully involved in joy and rejoicing over the salvation of a sinner. That's His enterprise in the world. Once God is seeking a sinner, the sinner will respond. And that's why there are verses like Proverbs 8.17, those who diligently seek Me will find Me. When God begins to seek you, you respond by seeking Him. Or Isaiah 55.6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. As He begins to seek for you and awaken the heart of the sinner, the sinner responds by seeking Him in return. And the promise of Matthew 7.7 7 is, Seek and you shall find. If God comes seeking for you, you will also seek and you will find. But not left to yourself. And as far as religion goes, the assumption in religion is you, you take yourself to God by your religious deeds, moral deeds, some level of righteousness or quality of life or goodness. But that's not how it works. God does not receive the righteous. I did not come to call the righteous. But sinners... To repentance. So that salvation comes not to religious, self-righteous people, but to the very opposite. Sinners. This is the foundation truth of redemptive history. So that's what's behind the story in chapter 19. Let's go back to it. Jesus has come south from Galilee, and it says in verse 1, He entered Jericho and was passing through, because you entered Jericho in the Jordan Valley, about six miles north of the Dead Sea, and you went from Jericho up the mountain to Jerusalem, and it was Passover time, and so there were large caravans of pilgrims coming down from Galilee and Perea, and crossing the Jordan into Judea through Jericho, headed for Jerusalem. Jericho was called the city of palms, it was sort of the Palm Springs of Israel. It it was well watered, two springs were there, and the water was basically distributed through aqueducts. It was a wonderful city, we are told with a wall around it and four massive forts on the wall. It had a theater, an amphitheater built by Herod. Herod also put a new palace there. And Archelaus had uh, developed some magnificent gardens there. It was a formidable city. It was a crossroads city because roads north and south and east and west went right through Jericho. You, you might say that it was the Eden of paradise. And Jesus comes through that city, headed for Jerusalem. And He's going to show us in this one account why He came. Why He came. Now the man that we meet here is named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus means pure clean, but he was anything but. That is an irony that probably indicates his parents had different hopes for him than materialized. But the pilgrim crowd is now coming, surging through Jericho on the way to what was called the Jericho Road, which you ascend to Jerusalem. They come right through the main part of the city. And the word is out that this one who claimed to be the Messiah and did miraculous works is in the group. And there are people who want to get a look at him. Find out if it's really true what is said about him. Is he the Messiah or is he not? And this one encounter demonstrates to us the divine purpose of God to save sinners in such a dramatic fashion. Particularly in the light of what we read in chapter 18. In chapter 18, there was a rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler? He was very rich. He was trusting in his riches. And when he Talked with Jesus. He had no interest in Jesus. He had no need to confess his sin. And he wanted to hang on to his life and his money. Verse 23 of chapter 18, He was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So those who heard it said, then who can be saved if rich people can't be saved and they've got all the money with which they can buy their way into the kingdom? Who can be saved? Verse 27, that familiar phrase, the things that are impossible with people, are possible with God. It's not possible for the rich sinner on his own any more than you could stuff a camel through the eye of a needle. And then you have the story of Bartimaeus, the blind man, at the end of chapter 18. And again, Jesus heals this blind man. He regained his sight. Verse 43, he was glorifying God, and even the people couldn't deny the miracle. So he saved a pathetic blind man. You could see that as an act of mercy. He talked to a rich man. The blind man, the destitute man, responded to our Lord. The rich man did not. Can rich men be saved? Well, it doesn't take very long to find out, because when we get to chapter 19, we, we run into one named Zacchaeus. You see it in verse 2, he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was rich. Um, th- this is the beginning of an outrageous story. literally outrageous. Because Jesus seeks and saves a tax collector. Why is that so unique? Because tax collectors were the pariah of Jewish culture. They were Jewish people who had purchased tax franchises from the occupying Romans whom the Jews hated. And with those tax franchises, they extorted money from their own people. They were the worst of the worst of the worst. And while this uh, city of Palms, Jericho, was a little paradise in terms of its setting, it was an onerous place because... It was one of three main tax collection centers in the land of Israel. Caesarea, Capernaum, and Jericho. Why? Because it was a crossroads. The road north to Damascus, Tyre, and Sidon. The road south to Egypt. The road west to Caesarea and Joppa. And the road east all went right through Jericho. And the tax system basically came down to a poll tax for everybody. We think from 15 to 65. And for any other thing they wanted to tax you on. They would tax people traveling with duty tax. There was a tax on the cart. There was a tax on the wheels. There was a tax on whatever was in the cart. There was a tax on grain, oil, wheat, anything. They invented ways to tax people. And there was really no recourse. And to make it worse, if you had a tax franchise, you were required to pay a certain amount to the Romans. In other words, there was an annual collection that they established, but anything you get beyond that, you can keep. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus did. You shouldn't be rich if you're a tax collector. But he was. There were all kinds of taxes. And these people were surrounded by thugs and low-life Kind of mafia types who had to strong arm the people to get the money out of their pockets. They were surrounded by the riffraff of society. Jewish, also Jewish traders who would work for a tax collector and, and do the dirty work. Because of the kind of people they were, they were also surrounded by prostitutes and petty criminals. It was a mafia operation. And they basically extorted whatever they wanted. No one would have been hated more than Zacchaeus. No one. Because it says he was a chief tax collector. Literally, that means he was the commissioner of taxes. Which probably meant that he was getting a bite into every tax. He was the commissioner of taxes. He was at the apex of that hated, despised profession. And he was good at it. He could pull it off and became very rich. But in his sordid life, and in the madness of his corruption, there must have been some dissatisfaction, and more than that, some heart guilt, because he's very interested in seeing Jesus. And he knows that Jesus is claimed to be the Messiah, and others have claimed that He is. It says in verse 3, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, pick Him out of the crowd, and was unable because of the crowd, for He was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree, probably what we would know as an oak tree with low-lying branches, in order to see Him, for He was about to pass through that way. This entourage is moving through Jericho, headed for the road to Jerusalem. He wants to get ahead of the crowd so he can see Jesus and pick Him out. Is it curiosity? Well, of course. Is it more than that? Was there some longing in his heart for forgiveness? We don't know that. We're not told that. But we do know this. He was a pariah. He couldn't go to the synagogue. He had no place in society. He had made his choice to be a traitor and he was totally isolated from the Jewish population. So for whatever reasons, he's interested in seeing Jesus. He has two problems. The crowd is too big and he's too small. So he gets on ahead, having run, and climbs into a tree, basically shunning all self-consciousness and all self-protection. He knows he's hated and he's now exposed, but he can't help himself. So there He sits in the tree as Jesus passes by. Verse 5, shocking. When Jesus came to the place, He looked up and said to Him, Zacchaeus. That must have jolted Him. How did He know His name? How in the world did He know His name? Zacchaeus. This is who he is seeking. The Lord is seeking this man, this wretched, this worst of the worst, this outcast. And He says, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. He probably never expected to catch the eye of Jesus. He certainly never would have expected that Jesus knew His name. He would not have expected that Jesus would ask him to come down and open his home to him so he could stay in the house. He would never have thought that. Why? Because nobody ate with him. Nobody went into his house. That simple statement, I must stay at your house, means to spend the night. This is not a request. This is a command. And to everybody in town, this is beyond comprehension because this is Jesus. He's supposed to be the Messiah. And He's going to go into the house of the most corrupt and wretched sinner in town. Well, Zacchaeus responded. Verse 6, he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Joy. Joy. Not fear. Joy. This was joy to Zacchaeus because somebody was willing to come to his house. And that somebody was the one that they said was Messiah. This was joy to the Lord because the Lord finds His joy in the salvation of sinners. What about the population? What do they think? Verse 7. When they saw it, they, they all began to grumble, saying, he is, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They wouldn't assume that the Messiah would come and go to a man who's a sinner, That was part of the whole drama with Jesus. Because when Jesus came in the incarnation into Israel, He spent time with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, and He ate with them. That's how chapter 15 begins. Verses 1 and 2. Just remind you of it. Now all the tax collectors... And the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What happened to Zacchaeus wasn't particularly rare in the ministry of our Lord. But the crowd was profoundly affected. How can this be the Messiah? They knew that He had given sight to a blind man. He had demonstrated miracle power. But he's, he's the guest of a man who is a sinner. This in one statement shows you why the Jews rejected Jesus. Because He came for the sinners. And if you thought you were righteous, you were offended by Him. Seriously offended. So offended, you crucified Him at the hands of the Romans. The massive offense of Jesus was that He came to save sinners. This was unacceptable to the self-righteous people of Israel. They had tried so hard to be righteous, with the minutia of the law. And Jesus actually said, I have not come to call the righteous sarcastically, but sinners to repentance. The attitude that you have in verse 7, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner, was the fixed national attitude toward Jesus that resulted in his rejection and His execution. That's why the nation rejected Him. It's righteous people who can't accept the Gospel. In order to come into the Kingdom, you have to be unrighteous and know it. Remember the Beatitudes? Meek, hungering after righteousness. But that also was not the Jews. They were smugly satisfied with their righteousness. Jesus couldn't be the Messiah no matter how many people He healed, no matter how many dead people He raised from the dead, no matter how many profound words He said, He couldn't possibly be the Messiah because all He did was spend time with sinners. Well, this one sinner... Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Him gladly. And then verse 7 says, they're in shock and they complain. And after verse 7, the curtain falls. Scene 1 is over. The curtain falls. And He is gone. Notice how it's worded. He has gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. So He's gone. He went with Jesus to His house. We don't know... How much time elapsed, likely that night, the next day. And in verse 8, the curtain rises again on the next scene. And what's going on? Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. Let me just stop there. If you get that right, you understand what salvation is. Whoever confesses Jesus says what? Lord. Behold, Lord, look, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. This is a dramatic transformation from being a thief and a professional extortioner, he becomes a philanthropist. In one day, Jesus said in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. Today? Can you be saved in a day? Isn't there a process involved? No. Today salvation has come to this house. How did Jesus know that? Well, he knew it because Zacchaeus brought forth the fruit of repentance and the fruit of salvation. Contrary to the rich young ruler who didn't want to give up anything, this man is ready to divest himself of half of his entire fortune and a whole lot more of whatever was left if you're going to pay back people four times. So whatever the conversation was at his house ended in his accepting Christ as his Lord. This is the confession of Lordship. And with that confession comes salvation. And he is a transformed man. Lavishly giving away everything he has. You can always identify the true Christians by their fruit, by their life. This is the mark of a changed man. He holds everything lightly. He wants to make things right. He wants to, as much as he can, undo his corruption and his sin. If I have defrauded anyone, and he had, probably many, I'll give him back fourfold. At that pace, giving the poor half of what you have and giving back fourfold what you extorted, you could virtually wind up penniless. Didn't matter to him. He wanted to do restitution. He wanted to make it right. And it becomes an immediate expression of a salvation transformation. And Jesus says in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house, because He too is the son of Abraham. What does that mean? Wasn't He already a son of Abraham, a Jewish guy? Yeah, He was naturally, but not spiritually. He, he fits into the category of Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And you, you'll remember this where the Apostle Paul says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the Spirit, you can tell this is, not, this is not the man He was. Something on the inside has changed. And Paul makes it clear in Galatians as well as in Romans that if you have trusted Christ, you are a son of Abraham. You may not be Jewish, but you have followed Abraham's faith. You have followed His faith. In Galatians 3, just to give you another text to look at that. So, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. So there's a sense in which all of us, Jew or Gentile, who have come to know the Lord through the gospel and through faith, are children of Abraham. He's the prototype of faith, and we have followed His pattern. Salvation came in one day, and it showed up that this was such a dramatic transformation, it was inconceivable that this man could change so totally, so fast. This was just another reason to kill Jesus. That's right. Just another reason for the elite religious leaders of Israel to hate Him. But He's in the business of saving sinners. Let me close with one final illustration. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul met Jesus on another road, didn't he? The road to Damascus. And the Lord sought him there, and stopped him in his tracks, and blinded him, and saved him, and commissioned him. But look at how Paul views that. This is his personal testimony. 1 Timothy 1.12 I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful putting me into service even though I was formerly a scribe, a Pharisee. No. I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. It was all mercy. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And then this marvelous verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. He came to save sinners, and I know it because I'm the worst. And for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. That deserves praise. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is in the business of saving sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, He died for us. He came to save the ungodly. This is the exact opposite of every religion in the world, which offers some kind of salvation for goodness and righteousness and religious conduct. The gospel is for those who know they're sinners and need mercy and grace. And if you're the worst sinner in the world... God may save you to put His mercy on display. That's what He did with Paul. Jesus came to save sinners. He seeks and saves. I wonder if He's knocking on the heart of some of you. Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock if He's seeking you in one day, this day, you can be transformed. Respond by embracing Him. Let's pray. Lord, the message is clear. We can't earn salvation by being good. It only comes as a gift to those who know they're bad, sinful, wicked, and cry out for mercy. I pray for your glory that you would seek and save some who are lost even this day. I ask in Christ's name. Amen.
5: they don't come close to understand it How you can go from most demanded To abandoned in the ocean stranded Surrounded by the waves of your weariness Some things you only learn from age and experience And it's plain to me that all the famous men you see The time is coming when they will be a faded memory Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not one day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who yeah. it is Whatever happened to so-and-so, that's what they want to know Eventually we learn that they all come and go Today's rising star, tomorrow dies with scars Today they all struck, tomorrow you washed up I remember watching Jordan Hall of Fame speech, thinking this is what it's like to watch the lame reaching gasp, but he tries to grasp what lies in the past, never to return what lies in the past. Did he tell himself, was he lost or sober? Did he know it was all but over? The moment that AI crossed him over, if I could be like, didn't include dying light. Let's shine the light on the one they call Iron Mike. Nowadays he's known for being all weird, but back in 88, nobody was more feared. At the peak of his powers, his opponents would retreat in moments he would eat and devour. snuff with punches, but we must discuss this. Crushed it just enough to trust his toughness. Pride brings us to justice. You puffed up with smugness? You're going to meet Buster Douglas. Amazing that which blazed like petrol. The new praise that made the waves in the metros. Was praised for days, but just a phase like retro. And fades like echoes, 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 echoes. day you get dropped, yeah, what in the world was your mind thinking, you couldn't see the sand of time sinking, cause one day you hot, the next day you not. One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is What I'm seeking on is seriously welcomed by the few Even no experience, to tell you that it's true On your radio station, this won't be found on the playlist Wisdom, the sound of the stages, resounded for ages The older I get, I notice it the whole of the script hmm, it's found in the pages. a holy writ, not the cash feet of the reverence, But what a man sees under heaven. Ecclesiastes 111. No matter who you are, death aims to stop you. Whether banker, doctor, or Frank Sinatra. Before your time is done, meet the timeless one. The dying, death-defying, rising, shining sun. King Jesus, astounding amazes. He pounded the pavement to save those who were bound to their cages. So let us praise the one who made the Everglades. Our debt was paid, so in glory we'll Never feed. Never feed. Never feed. Never feed.
6: In 1 John 4:1, the Bible says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Let's test the spirits behind the Enneagram. What is it? How has it become so popular in many churches? Where does it really come from? And what does the Bible have to say? The Enneagram of Personality, or simply the Enneagram, is a nine-sided star polygon used to classify human personalities into nine interconnected personality types. The word comes from the Greek words ennea, meaning nine, and gramma for writing or drawing. Each number at each point of the Enneagram corresponds with a different personality. The Enneagram is utilized anywhere from business management to religious contexts. Some believe it can help a person understand their own personality and the personalities of others, improve interpersonal dynamics, and become healthier and more productive. The religious believe it can help a person know God or achieve enlightenment. Others do it just for fun. Though the Enneagram is largely regarded as pseudoscience, it has developed into a cottage industry with seminars, conferences, books, jewelry, candles, and more. This became quite the fad in many American churches. Franciscan priest Richard Rohr was one of the first to promote the Enneagram to Christians with his book, The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective, published in 1995 and again in 2001. Over the next few years, Rohr's teaching on the Enneagram caught on with the emergent church movement, including teachers like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren. In 2016, Christian publisher InterVarsity Press released The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery by Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile, who is called the Enneagram Godmother. Ivy Press has since published dozens of books on the Enneagram, including an entire series devoted to each personality type. Andy Stanley had Ian Cron, an Episcopal priest and psychotherapist, on his leadership podcast to promote the Enneagram. Stanley said Cron is responsible for introducing the Enneagram to its broadest audience, evangelicals. Rick Warren has hosted Enneagram seminars for teachers at Saddleback Church. Tyler Zach is an Enneagram pastor who has organized the Gospel for Enneagram Summit. Speakers included Russell Moore of Christianity Today and Lisa Visher, the voice of Junior Asparagus from the popular children's series Veggie Tales. She's now an Enneagram coach. Other speakers included Beth and Jeff McCord, who founded Your Enneagram Coach so Christians can use its power to harness and transform self-limiting behaviors into life-enhancing personal empowerment. The gift of the Enneagram, they say, is that through self-discovery, one can create and sustain meaningful and lasting relationships with others, God, and themselves. Not through Christ, but through the Enneagram. Other Enneagram enthusiasts include Beth Moore, who says she is an Enneagram 7, and Scott Sauls, who's an Enneagram 4. In a passion talk, Sadie Robertson-Huff said,
7: I'm a 6 wing seven on the Enneagram. I can tell you everything there is to know about
6: it. Late Southern Baptist pastor Darren Patrick said, I think the Enneagram is like the image of God broken in nine pieces. In the same answer, he said, You've got to understand, really, the Enneagram is to show you your dark side more than your sunny side. Two weeks later, Patrick committed suicide. His widow was invited to speak at Tyler Zach's Enneagram Summit. Some churches have utilized the Enneagram to hire new staff, not according to their biblical qualifications, but according to their Enneagram number. Here's Troy Frazier of the Revived Thoughts podcast. I was working with getting hired at a church. Everything was going very, very well. However, at the very end, they just sent me a link and they said, hey, everyone who we would want to hire for this position is taking uh, this Enneagram test. And I don't remember what my numbers were, but let's just pretend for the sake of remembering these things. Uh, It was a four. The message I got back the next day was, oh, you are a four. I am really sorry, but actually, you know, I'm a four. Dave's a four. We actually have several fours already, and we're trying to have a well-rounded staff here. We appreciate you taking all the time on this, but, yeah. Not looking for a four right now. Thank you. This is not the only time, not the last time, I have an Enneagram test come up at Christian ministry. It's happened actually a few different times. At best, the Enneagram is pop psychology. At worst, it's of the occult. Now, this is something that many evangelical teachers pushing the Enneagram try to ignore. Bill Gaultier, who led the seminar at Saddleback, has said the following about
8: its origins. I did some research about the history of it, and I became convinced that I feel like
4: God has had his hand in the development of this tool. Now, I mean, so wait a minute, Bill. I've heard about, you know, all these different influences, Eastern religions, and Sufi
8: Muslims, and, you know, all this stuff. Well, that's true. It's a cross-cultural tool.
4: The first thinkers in the history of the Enneagram were the Desert Fathers and monks of the 3rd and 4th century, and they were Christians. The Desert Father, Evagrius is the one that identified the
8: seven deadly sins. The whole Enneagram is the theory is based on that, plus two more,
6: nine deadly sins. Now, you don't always hear about that <laughs> because it's a lie in fact the guy who pushed that story about the en- <laughs> and to be out, here's to <laughs> a psychotherapist and Enneagram guru Claudio
8: Naranjo so when people learned, heard me they thought I was talking about something that comes from Babylonian origins through Oscar de Chasso to me well, yeah, because they trust that more. They, 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 big yeah. scholars. I thought it, it makes sense. Around. Yeah. Actually, when I was, choo- I chose to do that intentionally, mm-hmm. and I was remembering a recommendation of Oscar Wilde, who yes. said, "If you want an idea of yours to become famous, attribute it to a famous person." That's right. <laughs> so at uh, at the conference, I told them I had made up this tale that all this came from millennia ago. And Hello, from, from the this information came from the Sufis. Oh, shoot. Sorry that.
6: In first John four one, the Bible he called his study Protoanalysis, nine ways in which a pro- in it read the eternal laws of the universe. The term Enneagram of Personality is credited to Oscar Ichazo, a philosopher who founded an occult school in Chile. He called his study Proto-Analysis, nine ways in which a person's ego becomes fixed at an early stage of life, often due to psychological traumas. Each person latches on to one of these ego fixations, becoming the self-image that develops into their personality. Icciazzo claimed to receive this from spirits, including an angel called Metatron. His student Claudio Naranjo referred to these spirit guides as a higher authority, through which he was also influenced. Naranjo assigned each of the nine Enneatypes, which he claimed to have received through automatic writing, a form of spirit contact.
8: Actually, Oscar Icciazzo had not described any of the enneotypes either. Actually, in the uh, uh, seven months we spent with him, he devoted about six hours to talk about the Enneagram, but he never came to describe any one of the types. That was so well, all that came to Erika, Chile. Erika, Chile. yeah, yeah. So that yeah. came from my own observations, but mostly from automatic writing. It automatic came, writing. Yeah, it came to me through automatic writing. Uh, the, the specific information about any types, which yes. I then verified through observation.
6: When you find your personality type is a 6 winged seven according to the Enneagram, this is not, as Darren Patrick called it, a reflection of the image of God. The Enneagram is not what God says about you. It turns out the Enneagram is what demons say about you. Galatians one six through eight says. I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed, let him be accursed. Deuteronomy 18:10 through 12 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices soothsaying, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who is an enchanter or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh. In 1 Timothy 4, 1, we are warned. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, Paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Now, just because a professing Christian uses the Enneagram, that doesn't automatically mean they have become a New Age pagan. They may be misled and should be warned that such a tool is not of God. It's no different than astrology, which also engages human personality and utilizes shapes like this. Well, that looks familiar, doesn't it? Tools like these will not deliver the freedom or enlightenment they promise. They lead to more deception, darkness, and even death. The Bible says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says to Christians, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Later we read, therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, Redeeming the time because the days are evil On account of this, do not be foolish But understand what the will of the Lord is Turn from these new age demonic tools Jesus died on the cross to redeem us from these worldly things Turn to Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge If you want to know who you are and what you are made for The answer is in his word, the Bible Know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error when we understand the text.
2: Thank you for watching. Please subscribe to our channel and look for our podcast. It's 20 minutes of Bible study, five days a week. Special thanks to Good Fight Ministries, Coltish, Marsha Montenegro, and American Gospel. Some of the sources for this video.
6: In First John 4.
2: Sorry. Uh, some of it was technical difficulty and some of it was, um, wasn't was changed to the timing. Um, uh, Sorry about the uh, dead air. So, but here now i got for you, this is an invitation to get social with us.
7: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com, that is, T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M, truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Cantroa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
9: So what happened at Babel? This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's Word. In Genesis chapter 11 we read about the Tower of Babel. Now many Christians don't really think much of it but it's an important event in human history. You see the events at Babel follow about 100 years after the global flood which destroyed the world and all but eight people. At this time People were all gathered in one place. So there aren't any people yet in Australia, the Americas, Africa, Europe, or most of Asia. Everyone's in the Middle East. And because of man's rebellion at Babel, God created brand new languages, forcing people to spread out. It's after this event that civilizations began to form all around the world.
0: Learn more about the history in God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or read a transcript when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
1: John K.
9: civilizations. This is Ken Ham, head of the apologetic ministry that's built a 510 foot long Noah's Park. When did civilization start? Well, according to evolutionary ideas, modern man evolved 200,000 years ago. Then they did, well, pretty much nothing. They supposedly lived the lifestyle of primitive hunter-gatherers for thousands and thousands of years. Then about 5,000 years ago, people suddenly started making large pyramids, ships and ziggurats. That story doesn't make any sense, but the Bible's history does. God created two people just 6,000 years ago. The most ancient civilizations like Sumer in Egypt were founded by their descendants about 4,000 years after the event of the Tower of Babel.
0: Find out more about the true history of mankind when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll see how the Bible is the lens we need to understand the world at AnswersRadio.com.
5: Let me start this off with a hallelujah To Jesus the sovereign ruler This is not a rumor Got the truth so we about to school you Check out a style maneuver Shout it to you like the loudest group But Christ brought us up from out the sewer We don't have to doubt the future Crash in our verses As we bask in His worship You asking the purpose Partly to set from the furnace To Jesus' extravagant service Immaculate purchase He was smashing the serpent And we only scratching the surface He's the He was seen
6: what was conceived In the womb of a virgin The sun emerges in the manger While the angels serenade him the birth of the Savior The greater came a man came as a lamb and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand in the place of the wicked, on the cross he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent, and laid out his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glory splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, descending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace, to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily posted on
5: bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority, so we both in the. Most exalted King Christ the He's sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer, no goddess real yeah. We can take any time with the scripture, which you gate is a prominent picture. See his light signing right in the night and it's bright in the night in and the diamond the mixture. See his name at all the renal, When he came for the lost that he found low, he was tame bit and floss all around but remained for the manger the cross with the crown. Yo, Satan had a shirt hold on him. Fight for the rope but in. then Also the eyes of the S to the E to the end, that's what we hopin' in Risen on it, spell check,
3: the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hellbound, now I'm spellbound. So word is born. I'm a born servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout I was bought with a price. We gotta hope that won't fail us when we return to the dust We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's thinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited The skies declare the
6: affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there who's aware, the who delights in our prayer His purposes are permanent and perfectly Proportionate, everything that orbits around is glory subordinate. Is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son, pre-eminent, the name, par excellence, pre phenomenon.
5: He's beyond phenomenon, you see, the father of cosmology, the ava of astronomy. He's pottery of we, of pottery. It's shocking, Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery, to poverty and robbery, to resurrected bodily, apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the pre-eminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your
1: detriment. Study the development from Old and New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. is on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments. The center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent. exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Listen yeah. to sinners that separated and segregated. That severed the relations between man and his
0: maker. And placed Christ on his costly cross. And compensated his life, death, and resurrection, emancipation. And gave us freedom from
8: it all, freedom from the effects of the fall, freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and from the law. So the saints stand
5: and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God.
9: How many languages? This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, and the Ark Encounter. Where did the world's 7,000 languages come from? Well, language scientists say they came from fewer than 100 original language families. So where do all those families come from? Well, evolutionists don't know. Maybe they say there was just one language and over hundreds of thousands of years different families evolved or maybe language evolved many times but we can know because the Bible tells us God created us with language right from the beginning but at Babel he divided this language creating about 100 language families And that's how many language families exist today.
0: There's so much more to learn when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll discover that science really does confirm the Bible when you go to our website at (laughs) AnswersRadio.com.
1: Time of Stone we
9: Everyone thought of the same thing? This is Ken Ham, author of the devotional commentary on Genesis, creation to Babel. In various places around the world, you'll find man-made structures built several thousand years ago. And what's incredibly interesting is that they all look eerily similar. In Egypt, they built pyramids. In South America, they constructed ziggurats. And in North America, they made mounds. They're all a bit different, but the similarities are striking. How did everyone think of the same idea? Well, because as the Bible tells us, mankind was once all together and tried to build a giant tower into heaven. When God scattered everyone around the world, they took that building knowledge with them. They eventually built ziggurat-like structures elsewhere.
0: Find resources to equip the whole family to think biblically when you go to AnswersRadio.com and discover the life-saving message of the gospel when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com.
5: Yeah, he made us all, you Yeah, God made us all, y'all. God made me and you sing, children, no. in the Book of Revelation.
2: That's all we got for Two Be Told Radio today. Thanks for listening to me. Most can here on Two Radio. Enjoy next time on Sunday. And our usual time is 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific. But today did a late show. Um, you probably won't know. Anyway, you probably wasn't listening to it. It's recorded. So anyway, thanks for listening. And I'm going out with Yancy M friends and the V.I.P.L. Bye for now.